Good morning. I'm going to read Matthew 17, verses 24 through 27. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the half-shekel tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that we can be here today and sing praises to your name and pray and read your word with fellow believers. Lord, we thank you for the privilege you've given us, Lord, to be here, to be alive today. And we pray, I pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes, that we would see wonderful things in your word. Lord, that we would be open to whatever you want to say to us today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. In Matthew 17, verses 24 through 27, Jesus provides for Peter a coin in a fish's mouth. This ranks right up there with axe heads floating and donkeys talking to prophets and feeding 5,000 and turning water into wine. Amazing displays of the glory of God. Matthew's gospel focuses on Jesus as the king, the kingship of Christ. He alone is worthy of our worship and our obedience and our trust. And we're in Matthew chapter 17. And in Matthew chapter 17, there have been two big episodes. Two big episodes, the first of which was the transfiguration. Where, where God displays his power and authority and then says of Jesus, listen to him. This is my beloved son, listen to him. Now the next big episode, was we saw last week, was where the disciples failed in their attempt to cast out a demon. And the response of Jesus was, was effectively to say, you needed to talk to me. So what you've got in these two big events in Matthew 17 is God the Father saying, listen to Jesus. And then Jesus saying, talk to me. Listen to him and talk to him. It it points out, it highlights the word of God in prayer. the, The primary position of the word of God in prayer in community with other believers as the Holy Spirit uses the Word of God in the lives of the people of God as they taste and see together that the Lord is good. Now we come to the last scene in Matthew chapter 17. And it's another scene featuring Peter prominently. It's recorded though only in Matthew the tax collector's gospel. Makes sense. Deals with taxes. I know you're interested 
Some of you have already done your taxes. Others are eagerly looking forward to one of your favorite times of year. I know. But here, Jesus is doing something that really builds upon the theme that we've already seen in this chapter. Uh, The fact that Jesus is authoritative. He is the authoritative, all-powerful Lord of all. His glory is over all. And he should be worshipped and obeyed by all. And so today we're going to see that grand theme, that great theme being played out even more as Jesus teaches as he provides. What was going on here? It's, It's the idea of a coin in a fish's mouth. Well, you'll notice that a lot more than meets the eye was going on. Um, Look at verse 24. They're in Capernaum, and the collectors of the half-shekel tax come up to Peter. They zero in on Peter, and they ask him a question, and their question was, does Jesus pay the tax? It's worded in such a way that expects him to pay. It's worded in such a way where they're saying, he should pay. Is he going to pay or not? Peter's quick response of, yes, of course, was probably premature. Um, Or it was a leap of faith if he knew that there was no money in the money bag. But Jesus basically makes a beeline to Peter when they get inside the house. He's going to correct him. The collectors of the half-shekel tax had come up to Peter, said, does your, does your teacher pay the tax? And Peter says, of course he does. So they get inside the house, and Jesus speaks to him first. This needs to, to be straightened out. And so he asks him a question, and Jesus asks him an actually possible situation question in hypothetical terms. Now what we want to know is, was Jesus teaching that his followers aren't supposed to pay taxes? A lot of Christians think that, that you're not bound to pay taxes. Was Jesus teaching that his followers don't need to pay taxes? Simple answer, quick answer, no, he was not teaching that. We need to pay taxes. A little understanding of the situation brings uh, the false teaching of you shouldn't pay taxes into, into light. It, crooked, it, it, it straightens out that crooked teaching. Look at verse 24. It was the collectors of the half-shekel tax. What kind of tax was that? If you understand what kind of tax that was and what kind of tax that Jesus is referring to in verse 25 and that they are different taxes, it all makes sense. Verse 24 deals with the temple tax. It was an annual voluntary payment used to uh, keep up the temple, to maintain the temple. And it was a religious tax. And it was, uh, it's, it was instituted uh, and, and spoken of in, in Exodus chapter 30, verse 13. Here's how it reads. Everyone who is numbered in the census shall give this, half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The shekel is 20, pounds, 20 geras. Half a shekel as an offering to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered in the census from 20 years old and upward shall give the Lord's offering. So it was a religious tax that was um, given annually and a half shekel per man. It was equivalent to two days wages. So basically every year, every one of the men 20 years old and upward that were counted in the census would give this money to help keep up the temple upkeep maintenance and so on verse 25 
doesn't refer to the same kind of tax. Jesus is speaking of, of in, in really a hypothetical way. What do you think, Peter? What do you think? From whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? So in a general way, not specifying any country or locality, but just whom do the kings of the earth take tax from? Do they, do they tax their sons, basically? And Jesus uh, asked this question, and Peter uh, you know, replies, no, they don't tax their sons, they tax others. So then Jesus says, the sons are free, the sons are exempt. And so that's why many people would say, well, see, we don't have to pay taxes. Verse 25, Jesus is referring to civil taxes, which, by the way, he himself said that his followers were to pay. Go with me over to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22, and we'll begin at verse 15. The Pharisees were always plotting to try to trip Jesus up in in the words he used so that hopefully they could point the finger at him and accuse him. The Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his talk. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully and you do not care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances. They're buttering Jesus up. They're trying to trip him up. And they asked this question, tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard it, they marveled. Paul also made it clear on God's authority that Christians are to obey governing authorities, including paying required taxes. Now, as an aside note, I will just say, of course, if there is an exemption, exemption offered, take it. Don't pay unnecessary tax. If you got the exemption, take it. But who was exempt here? Many will say, well, the sons were exempt, so Jesus is saying that his disciples are exempt. That's one view. But closer inspection of how Jesus was saying this and in this hypothetical way points to something more crucial. And the, and the, the, the picture of Christ here is unmistakable. Look with me again at that verse where he speaks of the taxes and then Peter's response He says in verse 26, from others, and so Jesus said, then the sons are free. Plural, as well as in his example, from their sons or from others. The idea here is that the one exempt is Jesus. Jesus is the exempt one. This is a high Christology being offered here that he is the exempt one as sons of kings were. He is the king, the son of God, whose temple it was. He ought not to be required to pay what worshipers paid to keep up his own house. He owned the place. Now, Jesus' next move probably proved to be more shocking in light of its specific nature. A coin coming out of a fish's mouth. Look at verse 27. Basically, he's telling Peter, you go fishing. You go fishing I know the money is out there. I know where it is, so you need to trust me. So Jesus says, 
So as not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for, you, for me and for yourself. By the way, the way that Jesus phrases that last sentence um, also indicates that Jesus was the exempt one and Peter was uh, non-exempt. The idea is that he was delineating for you pay for me who, who isn't supposed to pay and for you who would be paying. What was with the fish in the, uh, excuse me, what was with the fish with a coin in his mouth? And what's, what's going on here? What Jesus was doing is humbly paying the, the temple tax. Why was he doing this? It was so as not to cause offense. As kings do not tax their sons, technically Jesus as God's son was exempt from the tax. But he paid on behalf of himself and Peter and he did so, the process by which he did so, he provided authoritatively for his people in a most dramatic way, in a most demonstrative way. He didn't just hand Peter a coin and say, here, you go take care of me and you. He had him go get a hook. By the way, we're used to seeing net fishing in the Bible. But here, he's getting a hook, and he's going to go fishing and wait for a bite. And the first fish... Jesus is specifying the exact situation that is going to happen. He is to take the first fish that he catches and do oral surgery on it and get the coin out. And in in that will be the exact amount, four shekels worth, to pay for both of them. To pay for Jesus the exempt one and Simon the non-exempt. It's amazing for a lot of reasons But it's amazing that the one who is the stone of stumbling and rock of offense would wish not to cause offense in this situation. Why? Why doesn't he want to cause offense here? He doesn't want this to be the reason that they stumble over him. There would be bigger fish to fry in the coming days. He would be going to the cross. The cross would stumble them. He didn't want the fact of not paying a simple tax to be the reason that they said, we're not going to believe. What does this teach us about Jesus? It teaches us some very important things. First of all, the first thing it teaches us about Christ is that he provides exactly what is needed in every situation. And he, he sometimes does so dramatically. He sometimes does so dramatically. He's all-knowing. He knew where the fish was swimming around in the Sea of Galilee that had the coin in his mouth. And he's all-powerful. He was able to make that fish swim up to that hook at that moment. He gave a supernatural provision because he was teaching Peter. And and he did so in, in such a supernatural way, but what we need to realize is that God provides every day And it's always supernatural, but it's really through daily means. And God's provision is seen in in the smallest. His glory is seen in the smallest provisions that he makes for his people. Jesus instructed us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. And sometimes we see our daily bread on the table and we think, well, that's what we are are due. That's 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 what we deserve And that daily bread sitting there at the table is a miraculous provision from God. From the hand of God. 
Everything we have is His. Every good and perfect gift comes from Him. And it doesn't have to be a coin coming out of a fish's mouth to get us to see that His provision is miraculous all the time. Thanks be to God for His indescribable gift, Paul says. God has provided life and salvation. Yesterday we were looking at this in depth, but in 1 Peter chapter 1, we read of how amazing of a provision God has made in the salvation realm. Verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. If he has provided salvation, then everything else, everything else is minor in the picture, but still a miraculous provision. He provides through daily means. And he does so, he he provides exactly what is needed in every situation. And sometimes dramatically, but most of the time, simply. Most of the time, quietly. It shows up. And sometimes we forget to thank God. Now, there's two missionaries that I have, that I have read their biographies over the years and have, have uh, greatly in, in, in impacted me. One is Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor, the founder of the China Inland Mission. And Hudson Taylor was known as the father of faith missions because he never asked for a cent from anyone. But when Hudson Taylor was a brand new Christian and he was 18 years old, he decided that he needed to walk by faith. He needed to live by faith. And so his, his boss, I believe he worked at a medical facility, and his boss told him to remind him when it was time to pay him. So he decided that he was going to to move man by God through prayer alone. That he would not remind his boss when it was time to pay him. That he would just pray and ask God to remind his boss when it was time to pay him. And there would be days where he would be to his last coin in his pocket and no bread on the table. and, And the boss would come and say, I haven't paid you for a while. How come you haven't reminded me? Here, here's your money. It was Hudson Taylor that, that if, I, if I'm remembering the, the quote correctly, it's God's work done in God's way will never lack God's blessing or provision. Another missionary that had greatly impacted my life was the, reading the story of George Mueller, who was from Germany, but he, he ministered in, in Bristol, England, and he, he, he cared for orphans. He, was, he, he, led orphan, uh, he, he founded orphanages, and it's said that he cared for more than 10,000 orphans over his life, over his ministry time. And he never once asked for a penny, but in that time, more than $7 million came in by God, from God through people to keep these, these orphanages going. God's provision comes at exactly the right time in the moment it's needed. And even, even today, you might, be, you might be here today and say, but I have so many needs that haven't been met. And it's probably one of the more painful truths that I live with on a daily basis, but, and, and it actually comes from the words of a song, but it's this, that what you don't have, you don't need now. 
What I don't have right now, I do not need right now to do what God is calling me to do. He provides exactly what is needed in every situation, and sometimes dramatically, but most of the time through very quiet and, and daily means. Another thing that we learn of Jesus here is that his commands are authoritative and should be obeyed without question. His commands are authoritative and we should obey his commands without question. That he can be trusted and he should be trusted and obeyed. He is sovereign. It's interesting. There's, there's uh, this story here of him telling Peter to go and catch a fish. You know, I've gone fishing lots of times and I've, uh, sometimes I've caught lots of fish. But I've also caught other things. One time I think I've mentioned to you before I caught a fishing pole. Another time I caught a lawn chair. And, and I know I've caught a tin can before, and I caught a big, a big turtle once. But I never caught any of those things at God's command. God never said, I want you to go out and catch a fishing pole and give it to the guy fishing next to you that doesn't have a pole. Never have I caught anything at God's command, and never because I was looking for it. You know, today I think I want to catch a lawn chair. It didn't happen. It just, it just would, I just went out, and that's what came up. But here, God is specifying to Peter... He said, you go, and you take, a, you take a hook, and you go catch a fish. And that first fish, you open up its mouth. And stick his hand in the, in the fish's mouth. He probably didn't have needle-nose pliers. He's sticking his hand in the fish's mouth, and lo and behold, what's in there? Exactly what Jesus said would be in there. A coin. For from him, and through him, and to him are all things. His commands are authoritative and should be obeyed without question. Do you think that Peter might have been thinking, Jesus might be off his rocker here. He's asking me to go... Why doesn't he just hand me a coin? His commands are authoritative. And Jesus wants to be obeyed, expects to be obeyed without question. What else do we learn of of Christ? We learn of Christ... That he is what, exactly what we see in Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30. We see of Christ in this passage exactly what he said of himself. That he is humble and gentle in heart. Jesus, all-powerful. Jesus, glorious. God's glorious attributes on display in Christ. He is, he is all-knowing. He is sovereign. He is authoritative. He is better and more glorious than anyone or anything. Hebrews 1 tells us these things. Listen to the words of, of Hebrews 1. Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son whom He appointed the heir of all things. Through whom Also, he created the world. Just like John 1 tells us, Jesus created the world. He is God. And he is the radiance of the glory of God. And the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He was upholding the fish that was swimming in the Sea of Galilee with a coin in his mouth. He was upholding everything that was going on and he is right this moment. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. 
And here, what he is doing is he is showing his disciples, he is teaching Peter as he is providing, he is showing them humbly. In light of the incarnation, which we see in even uh, in more detail in Philippians chapter 2, that he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, where he voluntarily laid aside his privilege as God to go to the cross resulting in greater glory to God. But what he's showing his disciples here is how they ought to interact in the world for the glory of God. Not to cause offense inadvertently. The gospel does that purposefully. So don't let, don't let your action, your choice, bring, bring shame upon the gospel that it would cause offense because the gospel already causes offense. And how should this affect the way we live? How should seeing Jesus in this passage, in all his glory and humility, affect the way we live and affect the way we serve God? Well, going right along with what it shows of Christ, it shows us that we, first of all, simply need to trust his provision, however it comes. However it comes. Even if you say, well, he hasn't provided for me. We have so many reminders in daily life of how dependent we really are. That he gives to us life and breath and all things. And we see his glory in so many things. And in his gifts and in his presence. But I know that we miss praising him for his provision all the time. Again, we see the provision and think that we made it happen. That we bought it that we own it when really it's from him all along we take for granted God's gracious gifts when I was growing up I I had two sisters I still do but back then I wanted to get rid of them now I want to keep them they're great I love my sisters but back then I I I didn't want those two sisters and and I was across the street at my neighbor Kevin Poppins house one time and I was complaining to him about how my sisters would always get me in trouble and I wish they didn't even exist And Kevin, who was an only child, said, I wish I had a sister. We need to simply trust his provision, however it comes, and be thankful for what he provides, even even if it's not the thing that we thought we needed. Because you can be sure that the thing you have is the thing you need. Another thing we need to do in in light of what this teaches us about Christ in terms of the way it affects our life and the way we live and serve God is that we need to submit to his authority. You need to submit to God's authority. You need to submit to Christ's authority by wholeheartedly obeying his commands. Those authoritative commands that he expects to be obeyed. That's got to be really hard for us. We know it is. Think of the example of marriage. If you're married, you understand how this is. How hard it is to honor one another. How hard it is to, to even submit. I don't know how many weddings I've done where, where it, we get to the topic of submission and there's silence or hostility in the room. I did a wedding once and I hope no one here uh, is, is that the wedding I did. I don't remember who. I think, no, I do remember who it was. No, they're, they're not here. Okay. Um, we get it to this part and, and one of them says, do not, when you do the vows, say anything about honoring or obeying. I'll leave if you say that. We're not doing that. I'm thinking, you were in trouble before you started. 
But think about it, how tough it is when sinful people are in the mix to submit. You know, a lot of wives will say, I don't want to submit to my husband. He is always... And wives will say, you need to submit. You know, it should both show how, how sinful we are and how much we need Christ and how much we're, we're just lost without him. But it is not difficult to submit to loving servanthood. It is not difficult to submit to one who lays down their life for you. And that's what Jesus did. He died to bring us to God. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed. Coming back into our context here, Jesus was willing, unwilling, unwilling to cause offense, cause stumbling over matters of personal freedom. This is a voluntary tax, a voluntary, uh, a voluntary thing that we're ex- they were expected to pay. But in light of this principle, I think we need to consider several passages of Scripture so that we get a better look at what we are, what, what commands are we required to obey? Look with me at Romans chapter 12. We're going to look at a few things in Romans chapter 12. And as you're looking there, let me remind you of Titus chapter 3 verse 1. It says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. First Peter chapter 2, I'll remind you of that. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. It is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of of foolish people. Well, let's get to Romans 12. Romans chapter 12 and verse 17 says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Going over to Romans 13 verse 1, it says, Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those who exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. You can also look in Romans 14 about not causing brothers to stumble, and Romans 15, 2, that says, Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. But the bottom line is we are to do what is right, as an act of worship to God towards all that God has put in authority over us. There would come another day, many days where Peter would be faced with opportunities to obey Christ's authoritative commands, but there would come another day that Peter would go fishing and not at Christ's command. It was his own idea. It was after the cross and after the empty tomb, there was victorious Jesus and defeated, downcast, deflated Peter. I'm going to go fishing. I've failed. I'm done. I'm going back to what I know. And Jesus, the authoritative son whose word is law, reclaims Peter from the failed disciple parts bin. He brings him up out of the, out of the trash bin and, and Peter must have clung to the words that he heard because Jesus, in reinstating him, said, you, you feed my sheep. You, you tend my lambs. Oh boy, did he. On the day of Pentecost, he took his stand with the other apostles and he boldly and authoritatively preached the gospel of the grace of God in Christ to all who were afar off and all who were near. He took God at his word. He fulfilled his calling. You may find yourself in a similar place where you're called to do and you don't feel like you can because of your circumstances. 
I would say do the same as Peter. There are blessings in Christ for obedient children. Just like in your family, there are blessings for obedience. Last thing I'll point out, the third thing that we see related to what we see of Christ, then how does that affect our daily life and our service towards God is that you need to show kindness. We need to show kindness and humility in all of our interactions for Christ's sake. Not to gain an advantage, not so we will be liked, not to work somebody, but for Christ's sake. To show kindness and humility for Christ's sake. Let kindness and humility flavor your interactions with others. Paul appeals to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 10, and he says, I appeal to you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. He's coming to them humbly and saying, look, I'm appealing to you. In Romans 13, he says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the flesh with regard to its lusts. Plan for Christ-honoring thoughts and words and actions. Don't plan out sin. We get good at planning out sin. But, but God wants us to plan Christ-honoring actions. But we're always looking for loopholes here on earth, are we not? We're always looking for shortcuts. I remember when I was in high school and we were doing running workouts for track and cross-country, and I would always try to find the shortcuts because I didn't want to run as far as the coach wanted us to run, and it didn't help me in the long run. I'm sure glad that Jesus didn't take a shortcut on the way to the cross. I'm sure glad that he went the whole way to the cross for his glory and our good. A coin in a fish's mouth. It's all about the glory of God. It's all about the glory of God in Christ. The Greeks' highest goal was glory. And for them, that meant being honored and being praised by others. But the glory of humans is subjective. The glory of God is objective. Human glory is rooted in the evaluation of others. God's glory is not rooted in that evaluation, but in his very nature. What we see coming forth from this passage really is the nature of God. We see Christ in all his glory. It's all about the glory of God in Christ. Who he is and what he does it's all about his magnificence it's all about his majesty and his his fame and the fact that he that exists independent of all you know the world is impressed by appearances and and many times wealth and 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 position are equated with with glory and fame and people are desperately seeking this admiration and approval of other people all the time Christians ought to have a much different view than the world has. A different set of values, a different world view, a different world view of the world. Because true glory is found only in the splendor and magnificence of God. What we have as we come to the close here of Matthew 17 is the wonder and the magnificence and the splendor of God in Christ. And so our response is to offer Him praise. Our response is to offer him our lives, to give him glory, acknowledge who he is in and of himself, and give him the appropriate response, which is worship. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your glory. Thank you, Lord, for your magnificent 
glory and your daily provision. Thank you, Lord, that you are the one who said light shall shine out of darkness. And you have shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of your glory seen in the face of Jesus Christ. Lord, we know your glory is seen most clearly in Christ. Lord, may we come to him and keep coming to him. We thank you, Lord, and praise you in his name. Amen.